2: Coming up on this episode of White Wine Question Time.
3: And then the phone call came in, there's the pilot of Black Adder, and I wasn't able to do it. Uh, and then they waited and waited and waited. Eventually, they were given the series, by which time I'd finished at the National. And they, they phoned me up and said, hey, we've got a series. And I said, oh, well, that's great. Congratulations. Really well done. And they said, no, we want you to play Baldry.
2: You went in with a gang of people and bought what was referred to as a commune.
3: Oh, that was wonderful. So we, it was a real kind of loving. <laughs> Can you imagine? It's—I mean, to me, it's bigger than Desert Island Discs. I got—I got, I got nicer yeah. by Prince William. Bigger than that.
2: Hello, and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week was a multi up way before it even became a thing. An actor, author, comedian, presenter, political activist and now podcaster. He was knighted and made a sir in 2013 for public and political service after years of charity work, trade unionism and serving on the Labour Party's National Executive Committee. A tale of working class kid done good if ever there was one. He has more honorary degrees than O-Levels and a body of work that's as impressive as it is varied. An only child, he was raised on the fringes of East London and his love of drama led him to work as a child actor from the age of 13, starring in the original Western cast of Oliver, before going on to study at the Central School of Speech and Drama. From there, followed years treading the boards in rep theatre and working on children's television, before Lady Luck came knocking in the form of a script for a BBC pilot called Blackadder. Then followed his next iconic television show, this one ran for 20 years, and saw him step away from acting to present Channel 4's Time Team. Saw for two decades him dig his way through history with a team of archaeologists. All the while, he never stopped writing, be it shows like *Made* *Marian*, children's books, and of course, presenting history and travel documentaries. A father of two and a grandfather of two, he's now 76, and for the last 20 years, has been married to his third wife, Louise, who he met when they were forced to share a table as total strangers in an overbooked restaurant. I can't wait to talk to him. Let's dial him up, shall we? It's Sir Tony Robinson.
3: How are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you very much. The punchline is 76. Oh, yeah, well, if you've been around that long, you're going to have to have as that long as a, of an intro, aren't you? <laughs> uh, listen, I didn't even mention half of it.
2: That's the and I we had the, I had exactly this exchange with Prue Leith, who was a recent guest, and she said, "People always say, gosh, 'Gosh, you've done a lot,' but I have to point it out to them." She said, "I'm 83. I've been here a long time." <laughs> Uh, How are you finding the world of podcasting? Uh, I thought that you would have been here way sooner, can I say?
3: Oh, well, I I took that as flattery, I don't know. Uh, Yes, it it is. Well, loads of people had said to me, why. Didn't I do a podcast? And it was because I couldn't think of what I would want to do a podcast about because I just I'm interested in everything really, and, and there aren't many things I'm interested in more than the others, other than you know my grandchildren and my wife that kind of thing. Um, and so I could never I, I could never pitch something that was interesting. And uh, eventually, it was um, a company that uh, I've been working with for five or six years, so they become just as much mates as they are people who you would pitch to. And, uh, and I, I told them the problem, and they said, well, why don't you do a podcast about everything? And I said, yes, that's really what I want to do. And so although, of course, being me, uh, there are some funny bits in it and some historical bits in it and sociological bits in it, basically it's just things I care about. So in my first uh, uh, 12, I've done pies, and I've done... Can- why were
2: pies were invented? Yeah,
3: yeah. yes. Yeah. Prostate cancer. Not so much why prostate cancer was invented, but prostate <laughs> cancer I've done. Ben Smell. Henge. Yeah, Yeah, oh, you know about all this stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Why I, dogs uh, love
2: humans. I love that.
3: That's the new one. That's that's, that's coming out, uh, that's out today, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've always been passionate about that, just as a human being. I mm. don't want to do something that's recorded. I don't want to be me, Mr. Tony Robinson, doing something or saying something if it's just shit. It's got to be, you know, I've got to believe it's important. If you decide you don't think it's important and you and you prefer the funny face or you want to switch over, that's fine. But I've only got one life, and what I want to do is just engage with the world because that's, that's all I've got. And so that that's what's so lovely about what we're doing now, I think. It is and
2: everything that you've done informs everything that you're doing yes. and that's why it's such a pleasure to listen to, to the podcast it's called Cunningcast, it's available wherever you get your podcasts and do go and check it out because one minute you'll be in conversation with Tony and John Lloyd who is one of the most incredible television writers the next minute you're finding out why dogs do indeed love human beings it's like jumping around in your mind <laughs> Brilliant. Are you ready for your first question Tony? Yes I am I have read over what is a fascinating resume. Uh, And something that stood out and and stuck with me is is a show that you presented many years ago um, that did really, really well. It was called The Worst Jobs in History. And I wanted to know from you which of your own jobs would make it onto your personal CV of worst jobs
3: in Tony Robinson's history. That's a very easy one to answer in one way. The answer would be presenting a series called The Worst Jobs in History because I had to do them all. At least if, if all you had to do for the whole of your life um, was process leather by standing up to your waist in urine, uh, it's not the greatest thing to do. But that's the only bad job you do. That was like one out of six in one episode. <laughs> and and what you pretty soon recognize, I mean, most of those worst jobs, as you can imagine, come from the medieval period, if not before. Yeah. Um, what you realize is that you don't have the robustness to do these jobs because, you know, you haven't developed the muscles, you haven't got all those bugs inside you to eat away the bugs that you'll inhale when you're doing the worst jobs. So by the end of each series... I was completely wasted, absolutely <laughs> as poorly as one could possibly be what just through thinking? doing all that. Yeah, 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 yeah.
2: What were the worst of the worst then?
3: Well, the wee wee one was pretty difficult. Um, particularly, we did it, I, I think it's called St. Fagans. It's uh, um, it's one of those museums outside with lots of different buildings from different periods in it in, in South Wales. And we'd got the whole crew and the production office to save their wee, um, and and it has to be kept for around three weeks until it's that conker brown colour before it's effective enough. Um, I, I'll, I'll say this all very quickly, otherwise, no, no, we're we'll, no, no, we'll going. Look.
2: The detail is is devilish.
3: Anyway, yeah. Yeah, that's the whole thing about it, because what actually you're making is a, is a chemical reaction, because if you think about it, um, all those things that we've got under the sink, all those little bottles, those 24 bottles, you reach into the back of the sink and the stuff that's still by date is 1998, you know, yeah. um, but none of those <laughs> things existed, you just had to make them yourself and 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 obviously the most potent thing you had was your wee your chickens poo your your horses wee you know that, that waste. they were Natural waste that's it yeah they they were your chemicals and you got them for free or at least they were a, a spin off from the animal that you were managing so it was actually environmentally enormously um, uh, friendly to, to to use these things so in order to yeah you you put um, Fuller what's what we know as Fuller's earth. Fuller is another name for the man who processes leather. Uh, it's sort of ground up chalk and can't remember what else is in it. Anyway, you tip that in, you tip the wee in, and then you tread up and down and up and another name for processing leather like this, walking up and down, up and down, nonstop in a in a bucket, is walker. It's a you know the name Walker comes from the people who did that. The name Fuller comes from people who did that. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. And then, and then in relation to Johnny Walker, do we think? Well, exactly. Do you need a stiff drink to overcome yeah, the stench? Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> Everybody who's called Walker, their their relatives in some way were tainted by the job that they used to have to do. <laughs> and in some ways, sometimes it's reflected in what they do. <laughs> I hope
2: that made it into your episode of uh, what history smells like. Uh, I can't
3: honestly can't remember now. Maybe it did. But oh, the other thing about doing this processing uh, was that you had you build a you used to build a big tent which had hooks on it. Uh And in order to dry this thing off, because as you can imagine, you've been treading this leather uh, up and down for hour after hour after hour. You heave the damn thing out. Imagine how.
2: Oh, the smell.
3: Yes, yes. And the weight of it. And you get it over the tent. You fix it on the hooks of the tent, which are known as tenter hooks. That's Ah, where we get it from. When it's on. tenterhooks, something that's on hooks is it's so heavy that it's dragging those hooks down. You are on hooks. Nice. You see, you have learned something from this podcast.
2: I love this. This is what I mean. This is why I've loved your podcast. I've just carried on from episode to episode. Yeah, so that's definitely got to be up there with one of the worst jobs ever.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, what else
2: did you cover off for the series? Do you remember?
3: What else did I cover in... in the, well, the... The reason that I did it, or the, or the little inspiration moment that I, that caused me to pitch it, was I was in somewhere like I don't know Avignon, somewhere like that, in the cathedral, and we, we were talking about the Hundred Years' War, and we were talking about the knights in armour, and we got a specialist there. My whole life is spent sitting next to someone who knows a hundred million more things than I do. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> And and I said to him, most of these battles lasted between 10 or 12 hours. What happened if you wanted to go to the toilet? We're back in the same place, Kate. And, (laughs) And he said, well, he said, you would just do it. In your armour Because think about it If you're in the middle Of the pitch battle You can't suddenly Pull down your you metal can't pants need a <laughs> Can here Everyone pack up For a moment Louis <laughs>
2: Does anybody so want a... To go to the toilet With him? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Can you imagine? And... So they literally Have to just
3: Do it on the job So yeah You would do it there anyway, In the saddle And you're bouncing Up and down And blah, blah 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 And then at the end Of the day And this is the this was the selling point. At the end of the day, your arming squire, who was like your trainee, he would come there, unhook the the armour, take it off. The knight would go back to his tent and bask in whatever it was he was going to do for the evening, and you would get some sand and some water and you would scrub out the inside of his armour. Um, that's what the arming squire did. And I turned to my producer and said, blimey, that must be the worst job in history. And we both went, (laughs) huh? And like dollar signs revolved around our eyes like like in a cartoon. And we took it to Channel 4. And it was the perfect sort of uh, Channel 4 pitch in those days, wasn't it? The worst jobs in history. Of course, what we were really doing was something I'd wanted to do for ages, which is social history, the history of ordinary people. But if you, if you said to a commissioning editor, I would like to do a show about social history, you don't get as far as the word social and they'd be out the room. But if you yeah. say I want to do something about, about people's poo, well, you were laughing.
2: Or the worst job. in I mean, it's just the worst jobs in history.
3: Yeah, just exactly. Everyone, everybody turns their head to that, don't yeah, they? Yeah, 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 yeah. But they pulled it after two series. I mean, it's that, it's that funny thing about telly, isn't it? Because telly is always le- yearning for the new. Actually, when they, when they develop something and that something is, it is a bit special, um, they either take it off so that they'll have a special slot free for something else or else they'll reduce the budget.
2: Well, I think there's well, they're competing variables, right? You know, audiences are splintering. They don't have those big numbers that they used to. Um, but, yeah, it's an interesting world, isn't it? Because, you know, look, you can take everything that you do and know as a broadcaster and do it yourself now. And yeah. if, if if you've got the wherewithal to do it and you don't mind rolling your sleeves up, the world can be your oyster.
3: Yeah. You know,
2: the power, the power is there if you want to take it back.
3: It'd be interesting to see, won't it, whether television ultimately becomes either big massive orchestrated dramas which at least in the near future we're not going to be able to do from home or else very 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 cheap programs and actually what we'll lose are all those middle programs
2: the interesting times history will hopefully be telling this story one day by the next generation of young tony robinson
3: yeah although i i in a way, I'm not sure that history exists because, like, we can't identify where now is. So the things that we've just been saying five minutes ago—that's history, isn't it? That's the past. Yeah. And uh, I don't, I, I don't like this idea that history has to be about the 1400s or the Vikings. History can just as well, like Liz Truss. You know, you you ought to be able to do a program about uh, about her and what happened. And it's and it has that feel of history, but it also has that feel of now, and it has that feel of surprise mm-hmm. and humour and all those things mixed up together. Is is well, it's just how I think.
2: I wonder, how, I wonder and how she would tell that. It was like she came in as a competition winner, won the job for a few weeks, caused havoc, left us all broke, and buggered off.
3: Yeah, yeah, and and then sent in her claim for expenses.
2: Exactly
3: the audacity.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's see how history paints that.
1: <laughs> Hold up.
2: So Tony, your next question is pretty simple. I want to know the single best and the single worst decision you've ever made.
3: Oh,
1: wow, 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 wow,
3: Um, Well, I bought um, bought a fabulous house in Spain when I was at the peak of my earning powers, when both uh, Time Team and Blackadder were flying off the shelf. Uh, and I spontaneously bought this house. I just I saw it, just went into the estate agent and bought it and my partner said, how much are you going to uh, uh, put down for it? And I said, I am going to go the whole way. What they ask, because it's such a wonderful house. I, we've really got to have it. Because I don't know, like any performer, what's going to happen next year or the year after. Or the year yeah. after we're going to go for it. The day after we exchanged, the world's banks crashed. No! <laughs> no! House. I saw the money of the house go,
2: oh my goodness, it became a financial sinkhole.
3: It did. It did. Yes. It was like, um, yeah. Oh, it was like this great sack that I was carrying on my back. But in the end, you know, I, I said to myself, "Look, I've bought and sold the houses and flats that I've lived in. You know, ever since I was first grown up, and almost invariably." I've sold them for far more than I bought them for. That was just the way of the world. Well, this is just the world saying that it's the world making that announcement that they make at the end of adverts. These things go down as well as up. Yes. And all those years later, every time I go over to Spain, it's like I can just about see the fingers on the top of the wall. It's kind of pulling itself, but I haven't quite seen the face yet.
2: So do you still have the house?
3: Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Can't get rid of it, it's negative <laughs> equity. Fortunately, in a position where I didn't have to sell it. Right. You know, I got into that position where I'd had to sell. That's when written negative equity really kicks in. Right now, it's just a rather embarrassing story that I can tell you, and the entire rest of the world about. <laughs> <laughs> Be able to manage my money properly.
2: But actually, your experience with property has been pretty fortuitous. And your, your first step on the property ladder wasn't a conventional buy was it you you went in with a gang of people and bought what was referred to as a commune
3: Oh, that was wonderful and this is in this is in Bristol in Clifton and in those days Clifton wasn't posh it it was it was like it, 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 it took the same Trajectory as, as somewhere like Shoreditch or, or Hackney that it was it was dead rough. Gentrified. and then suddenly people realised the extraordinary quality of of the buildings yes gentrified but you know if you've got a lot of Victorian five storey houses then when you start to gentrify it's mega gentrify isn't it and uh, and, yeah. and that is by and large what what happened to to Clifton and I'd gone down to work at the Bristol Old Vic with my partner at the time and met two other couples down there who we really really got on with it's lovely you know when you when you're in your late 20s and 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 meet mates. It's like you know you're all going to be having kids in a few years' time. And actually all the daft stuff you did in your teens and early 20s you don't really want to do. But just to kind of be together and talk together and drink together is absolutely great. So it was a real kind of love-in. And um, we all needed to get places to live. And someone came up with the idea of why don't we buy a big house together? And we saw this uh, this lovely... uh, I think it was, yeah, it was the Georgian house in in Clifton or it might have been William. I can't can't quite remember the dates of it now. And we bought it together and we said we'll live in it communally but with all the advantages of if we were living in adjoining flats. So each couple had their own floor which was like their own territory and then the whole of the middle of the house was communal and one of us would cook every six nights and uh, anyone could sort of, you know, like book the spare bedrooms for mates coming in. And the front door was always open, and you know lots of traffic going hither and thither, and uh, and we were all all that all of the guys were in the arts, um, either had been or or were still in the Bristol Old Vic. Uh, all the women were teachers in comprehensive schools. So as you can imagine, it was all all the chat was about art, history. Uh, education, politics and, and all these people were coming down from London because they loved the idea of it's a commune. I mean, it wasn't a shaggy commune, which is what people always think it'll turn out to be. It was, yeah. it, it, was just, it was just people who liked each other and kind of wanted to be together. And also, it meant that you could Share share the resources. We would. We had one of those cards where you could go to somewhere and you could buy like kind of half a hundred weight of toilet roll and half hundred weight of jam, and the place was big enough (laughs) to store all this stuff. And the only reason, really, that it that it ended was because once we'd all got kids, um, it became they were. It was such a big house that like all the kids were on the top. So like um, Mary and I were in the basement and. Our Laura was like in the fourth floor because that was the nearest there could be a room for us. every time the old intercom went, <laughs> yes. get your steps yeah, in. Yeah, for, forever. <laughs> there were not such thing as steps in those times. It was just sweat. Um, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, eventually it grew impractical. But it was an enormous, it was an enormous present because most people, I think, by the time they're in their early thirties that kind of integration that integration that kind of and i 'm not being trivial about that that kind of intercourse you know permanent chat as it were, and sharing yeah. with people that 's kind of long gone, but we still had that well into to our thirties and it was it was a great time you were always learning off people, and there were always people yeah. coming in, and as I say we someone would cook uh, every dinner time, and there was, you know, the big wooden table and there'd always be other people in, and we would just all be, you know, talking about the it world.
2: How it, it sounds like how I intend on spending my retirement.
3: <laughs> I'd love that. It sounds funny great. It was great, yeah.
2: Interesting as well, isn't it? When you look at... Um, uh, I mean, you must be very, very proud of your daughter, uh, who is now a successful historical novelist after a twenty-year career in politics. Yeah. Uh, all of the things that she was alive to, yeah. living in that environment—not, you know—certainly, certainly, when you had that shared living arrangement. But obviously, mirrors an awful lot of your own interests. But yeah, that must be, as a parent, an air punch moment where you just go, "Look at
3: her!" Oh God, can you imagine? People come up to me in the street now and say. Aren't you Laura Shepherd Robinson's dad? Which is just, a, oh, I just love it. I love it, I love it. Uh, uh, her success, for those, you know, a lot of people who don't know, she's called Laura Shepherd Robinson. She's a, a historical crime writer. Most of her stuff is set in the 18th century. Her first book, called Blood and Honey, got the, um, uh, what do you call it, the, the, the first book award uh, for... Historical A crime. Debut. The debut. That's the word. I'm sorry. Yeah. The second one got the best historical crime novel of the year. Third one's out in June, uh, and she's just and she's just sold the rights to America. And uh, she yeah, really it's just Dora. it is just great. And she only lives. Four blocks away, so uh, you know we see. Each- she was the other person that I saw in lockdown because she lives on the first floor with a balcony, so I could like walk the dog and go to the house, and we would have those sort of those conversations up and down. Oh, that's and, nice. Uh, yeah, and, I, and we've always adored each other, and I, and I'm exactly the same is true of my uh, of my son Luke, who's a couple of uh, years younger, and it's still terribly, terribly strong. And you know, like when when. Uh, reporters say to you, what's the thing you're most proud of? It's one of those kind of lazy questions that you've grown inside, isn't it, when uh, when someone yeah. asks you that. I've just noticed Kate crossed the question off her list. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not at all. But it's always my first answer it's, it's, because it's the there is
2: nothing better.
3: It's the kids. It, no, it's not the kids. It's my relationship with the kids and their relationship with me. That's what I'm really proud of. And yeah. it's still, it's still there. Being, yeah.
2: being their parent, yeah. Like just the, the honour of it. My son turns fifteen tomorrow, and I literally sat and wept the other night as I sort of drafted a card to him, and I thought, oh, I don't want to embarrass him, but I just want him to know how much <laughs> I adore being his mum. What a privilege it's been, and the, the happiest years of my life, Tony, hands down, is, is the years that I've been raising him, and yeah it, it's the one thing that's always going to put a tear in the back
3: of my eye i tell you why i'm giggling i'm giggling because i'm sure you've done this too so you come home you come home you're just a little bit pissed not not nasty just a little bit pissed you come to the room you wake up your kids and you say I, you. I just so love you i just <laughs> you're gonna remember <laughs> i don't even this need your drink to... <laughs> for that you know like we were talking earlier about how
2: people speak to their dogs I'm that mum, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not. But internally, that's yeah, my internal yeah. monologue. Oh my God, I yeah. lo- I literally watched him this morning. Oh God, he's going to hate me for Ooh. saying this. I literally watched him just walk off to go and get on the bus this morning. And I just thought, look at you, look, look at you. Look at you. I just such pleasure <laughs> from looking at yeah. him. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you yeah, know, that's the ultimate love story yeah. really, isn't yeah. it? The love that you have for your kids.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
2: How is it with grandchildren? That must, um, that must be... Same, same, but very different.
3: Yeah, it's lighter. Because with my kids, this was particularly uh, their mum and I split up uh, before either of them were in their teens. We still had a very good relationship. I mean, it wasn't one of those ghastly split-ups. But I looked at, uh, out of the, uh, after them solely for you know half the time. Um, so. Every step that they took, I was monitoring it in case they trod on glass, you know. Every shop I went into them with, I may lose you. (laughs) It sounds a bit of that. (laughs) Every game I drove them to on a Sunday, you may break your leg. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas I so don't feel about that, about my granddaughters. It's just like... You know, if you break your leg, oh, darling, I love you so much. Uh, Luke and Gemma will look after it. <laughs> <laughs> I won't be getting up yeah, to you yeah. in the night. <laughs> uh, no, it's it's, it's, it's it's lovely, and I, 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 I there is, and I think that when you have that kind of relationship with your grandchildren, and and I've talked about about this to loads of people, and it's the same, same for them. The grandchild responds to it because I think a lot of time when when um, children are with adults. There's something so focused about what the ad- adults are doing that it is, it's is—it's a bit of a weight for a kid, isn't it? <laughs> Whereas well, if, as if you were able to say to a kid, look, um, I think if you did that, it would be a bit stupid but quite honestly if you want to burn your hand you burn your hand yeah yeah. (laughs) take my advice or don't take my advice it's up to you there is something that for a kid which must be a bit oh thank god (laughs) less intense (laughs)
2: Uh, well I hope you continue to enjoy them are you ready for your third and final question Tony oh yeah 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 Life is often peppered with sliding doors moments and one such sliding door moment has given you a good 20 years of happiness with your wife Louise who, I love this, you you met, I read, tell me if this is right, after you were forced to share a table in an overbooked restaurant <laughs> as complete
3: strangers, is that yeah, it right? is. yeah, 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 yeah.
2: So I just wondered if you could revisit that and also if there are any other seminal kind of sliding door moments that have got you to where you are today.
3: I have to. I can probably say this because it was twenty years ago. I was an evil, seductive bastard at that table. <laughs> because <laughs> that's beautiful. Not it's slightly <laughs> menacing, even. <laughs> it was. It was. It was one of those extraordinary moments where suddenly you're with someone, and it's funny. It's kind of the opposite of what we were just talking about. We both said this. It was like. <laughs> To the other person, I've suddenly sat down in front of the most fantastic person I've ever met. Oh. It really was like that. And uh, uh, Lou lost her appetite. I mean, <laughs> some bloke just sat down next to her and he's going, "Yeah, but yeah, yeah." She lost her appetite, and. Um, she said, it's the only time in my life I've ever, ever lost my appetite. When people say <laughs> I've lost my appetite, I've always thought, wanker. But she said, I really did lose my appetite. So, so me charmingly said, oh, don't worry, I'll get you something else. So she ordered something else and she couldn't eat that either. <laughs> and 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 I uh, I then walked her back to to, to work. So it was it was in uh, Smithfield, you know, what used to be the market, and yeah. there used to be a restaurant there. Yeah, Sweet yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't a meat, meat market there. It was it was lots, lots of little artist shops, and there was a restaurant called Spitz and, it, and yeah, John Tarrow did. It. I never knew that. Yeah. Oh well, yeah. it's because of John Tarrow that uh, I met the love of my guess. life. Um, how funny! Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, so I, I walked her back to. She was working in the one of the London universities uh, at that time, and she said how much she enjoyed Time Team, and I said, "Well, if you ever want to come and have a look at the making of it, um, do come." And she said, uh, "Where would I sleep?" And I said, uh, "I said, oh, we've got loads of tents." <laughs> <Tentum>. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> but you, you had that you, you describe it as but it was almost like you tuned into each other's
3: frequencies oh, no, yeah would that, completely, would that be a, a
2: fairly? completely
3: yeah absolutely it's just, it's just so lovely that isn't it just so lovely
2: yeah so that was a sliding doors moment where you met strangers and left as well what would be
3: 20 years man and wife
2: um what about the other sliding door moments those those moments of great significance (laughs) i
3: was gonna say the ones where you get your fingers jammed (laughs) (laughs) there is that they could be significant (laughs) other moments oh well i suppose you know we've not mentioned this in the whole of this podcast um there was a moment when i'm living in the commune in bristol in the basement there's a thump. Something's come through the letterbox. I go up the stairs to the front door. There is a brown envelope with the old BBC crest on it. It has to be a script. That's the only thing that gets sent. And Now, I never get sent a script in those days. There are a number of... In those days, you never used to get sent scripts, did you? You had to go up for N interviews, and then eventually, reluctantly, someone would say that you're employed. Um, anyway, I opened this script... And the letter says, This is for the pilot episode of Rowan Atkinson's new comedy series. Uh, Would you like to play the servant in it? Now, I'd left school at 16. There was no way I was ever going to break into that charmed circle of what I thought of as Oxbridge comedians. I always thought everything that they did, they were so wonderful. Everything that they did, I just thought it was made for me. But there was no. So you were a oh, fan? Oh, enormous. Huge, huge, huge fan. More than that, I would have done anything. I would have, I would have chopped off both arms and legs and rolled into the rehearsal room in order to, to, to be associated with those people. So I immediately suggest I couldn't find the part. The first, I sped read through it, never found the part. And I had to read through it very slowly. Again, because Baldrick had only got eight lines and none of them were funny. And so I said yes, I'd do it. Obviously, I wasn't the first choice. I was sent the script on the Thursday for rehearsals the following Monday. <laughs> so, um, who do you
2: think missed out on that moment? Did you ever find out who the original Baldry
3: well, was? Well, I've heard. That, well, they say there was about nine people. But you say who was the original Baldry? Um, we rehearsed the pilot for six days, and then the producer came in ashen-faced on the last day and said, there's been a strike at the BBC, we're not gonna be able to record it. So we all had to go away, and because the strike went on for some time, there was a log jam of studios, and it had to be the big studio, which I think was Studio 3 in, in, in BBC, You couldn't shoot it in in any other one. So the weeks went on, the months went on. Eventually, I was offered a job at the National Theatre. Great job, a year's contract. Nobody ever offered me a year's contract at that time. Very, very interesting play about the Oresteia, a Greek tragedy, when we were all going to wear masks for it, and a group and a whole ensemble of us were going to work with Peter Hall and the writer and the music. You know, really, really, from an actor's point of view, great work. So I took that. And then the phone call came in. In, there's the pilot of Blackadder and I wasn't able to do it and another uh, another actor called Philip Fox um, did the pilot uh, and then they waited and waited and waited eventually they were given the series by which time I'd finished at the National and they they phoned me up and said hey we've got a series and I said oh well that's great congratulations really well done and they said no we want you to play Baldrick and I went, but uh, did somebody else played that? And they said, yeah, I know, but we always thought that we would like uh, you to play Baldrick. So anyway, this is the punchline. It's good. This is a story with a proper punchline. That pilot was never transmitted. But on June the 16th, it is going to be transmitted. They've asked me. No. Yeah, they've asked me. See, oh, it is a proper punchline, isn't it? They have asked me. To make a series, I'm going to do all the interviews with people like John Lloyd and Ben Elton, Richard Curtis, uh, Howard Goodall, who wrote the the music. Um, 90-minute long programme, and in the middle of it, they're going to play, unredacted, the whole pilot, which I will be able to watch, even though I'm not in it, as it were.
2: (laughs) Have you ever seen Well I have
3: now, because because it's a, a documentary. We actually filmed at the Electric Cinema, in front of an audience, me introducing the audience to the pilot of Blackadder, and then I'm not in it.
2: <laughs> oh, my God, that's brilliant. I mean, even today, it's been reported that there are... To, to mark, it's the 40th anniversary, isn't it? You're all going to be on stamps. You're on a stamp, Tony. Did you know this? I
3: sent a text to someone this morning, and it said... I'm on a stamp I'm on a stamp I'm on a stamp I'm on a stamp <laughs> kiss kiss <laughs> can you imagine it's I mean to me it's bigger than desert island discs i got i got knighted yeah. by prince william bigger than that i am on a stamp you know, you imagine like when i was a little boy i had the stamp album it was a lovely stamp album. I filled it and I had to get another one and another one. I've still got them upstairs. Stamps were like these beautiful, exquisite statements that you you know, as you say, you got the little hinge and carefully licked it, part of it and then yep. pressed it into the thing. Maybe wrote, wrote a note or two underneath it about, about what it was to be on a stamp.
2: Epic. Isn't that a brilliant full stop on that phenomenal sliding doors yeah, moment? Yeah,
3: yeah.
2: You know, look at where it's ended. And who's does no, say it's it ended. Ended. It ended? You continue to talk yeah. about it. But, um, yeah, I am just quite proud of the fact that I managed to get almost to the end of the podcast. I haven't mention, mentioned Blackadder, <laughs> but you did. I think we've done pretty well, Tony. <laughs> Does it ever get old for you? Do you ever tire of it? Never, never,
3: never, never. It got, I, uh, the year after um during COVID, in those gaps in between COVID, I had so much work. It was just fantastic. After COVID, it all went a bit flat. And I seriously started to think, maybe this is it. You know, I'm, I'm as I was then, I'm 75. I had the most fantastic career. Started when I was a child actor when I was just 13 you know, so so, oh, well over 60 years. I can't knock it. If it's faded now, that's fine. But this year, it's been back with Avengers and doing the podcast, which is like my thing that I adore and love. Mm-hmm. Do you see the way I'm getting back to the plug at yeah, the end of the... Got... <laughs> Cunning cast, <Yeah>. it's called. <laughs> you know, the other month, I was outside my house um, and right near me, there is a little bridge over the Regent's Canal. People... It's near Warwick Avenue, and there's this little hump bridge that's painted light blue, and they were tarmacking it, and they were tarmacking it with this massive machine, and there were about six guys operating it, London guys. So it's all that real hey oh to you yeah hey love do you want to you know <laughs> it was just so lovely, and I was looking at that machine, and I thought. I would not have known what that machine was had I not seen it working, had I not seen it producing what it actually produces. It would be great to make a doc about that machine. And then I thought, well, no, what would be great would be to make a series about all those machines that are out there that I don't know about but that actually produce something which affects my life. And I pitched it. Yep. And like these things, it like you were saying about there's like whole new models of how things uh, are created. Yep for those of you who are watching everything virtually that Kate and I have done up to our podcast you have to get the okay from a big broadcaster who may then get little pots of money from somewhere else but basically it's about the tr- yeah, it could take years. It, yeah so i pitched this thing and it just disappeared and i as You and I have both done. It's one of 20 things we've pitched during the course of the year. And however much you care about it, you die a little when it goes away, but then you move on to the next thing. So two and a quarter years later, my agent suddenly gets a phone call. Oh, we've got the money. What for? Oh, for... Tony Robinson's Marvelous Machines what that yeah and the way they've done it as you do know they've got little pots of money from all over the place and little yeah. things up in the sky that, <laughs> that show programs that I know nothing about yeah. and they all pull this money yeah. together and um, And I've got got my series. And so I've had lovely last few weeks where I've been going off to see terribly passionate people who've created machines I'd never been in before. The most fascinating of which for me was the hydrogen car it was a it was a beautiful little car what they do is you you put in a bit of hydrogen and it goes like kind of into water and it creates the the electricity which drives the car and it's so clean the exhaust pipe out of the exhaust pipe comes clear water and steam wow. i ran my thumb round the exhaust pipe and licked it to show how how clean it was. And it's not dangerous. You always think, oh, hydrogen. Well, that's a bob. You know, you have a crash. It's not like that at all. It's really, really clean. It's manufactured in, in such a light way that you inject the colour into the sheets that you're going to make the car itself out of. Now, those big car places like Dagnum, a third of all the space is about the paint spraying. Suddenly you lose all of that yeah. and, all, and all the expense. And they reckon that they can make factories which are just for 5,000 cars. So, like, you know, every medium-sized town could have its own car factory with jobs for local people rather than ripping the guts out of somewhere and making this mega investment. This is, you know, this is like a sort of medium to low-scale investment. And there am I, driving this car, and they've been so clever. They've made them so sexy. You remember how, in the 70s, Minis would be painted wonderful colors and there would be a young yeah or yeah, yeah. And, Jack. and there would be in front of it there would be yeah. a young woman in a mini skirt going like hi <laughs> and that's what these cars look like like they look they have all that kind of pizzazz and excitement of of uh, of those cars, so uh, I'm I've become a born again hydrogen car fan. I honestly think living in London, I'm never going to have a car with one of those electric bat- batteries. I've got wh- where I live. There's probably about 300 cars in the street. We've got 12 charging points. That's not going to work for me. That will mm. never work for me. I don't think it will work for people in London. And then you know, even if you find one, you, you've got to keep it for however many hours. While other people are beating at your car, <laughs> they get Yes yeah. It's yeah, so yeah, yeah. Their I just. I honestly yeah. think we've, we've got but It's it wrong.
2: exciting, isn't it? I mean, here you are, you know, you're getting, you know, fizzed up about new technologies that are changing the world we live in. Still loving telling those stories. And by the way, still getting commissions at the age of 76.
3: I'm glad you're... Pre- I, I, see, if I say that, no one else I'm gets impressed. that. But yeah, that
2: is... Yeah. I get it. That's That's remarkable. As are you, <laughs> sir. Uh, which is why you're a set. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Truly, I have enjoyed listening to Cunning Cast and I would implore anybody um, to dive in because it's not just history lessons. There's great conversations with people like Miriam Margulies, John Lloyd, um, Jess Phillips, who you've mentioned, who we also have had on on this show. And she's wonderful. The ultimate raconteur.
3: So when do we start doing this podcast?
2: There you go. I'll hit record now, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Honestly, thank you so much.
3: Not nice all. Nice to talk to you, mate.
2: My huge thanks to Tony Robinson, and of course, you can listen to his podcast, Cunningcast wherever you get your podcast, And if you're in the mood for more compelling conversations, why not dive into our back catalogue? We've got episodes with Jess Phillips in there, with Griff Reese jones Al Murray, a David Lammy MP, Craig Charles, Alan Cumming, Alistair Campbell and John Thompson. They're all available now. And I'll be back on your feed next Tuesday with another drop of Something From The Cellar, another mini episode serving up more vintage chats from our white wine question time cellar, bringing you the very best bits from some of our very best guests. Until then... Thanks for your company.
0: White Wine Question Time is a stack production and part of the ACAS Creator Network.
1: Hold up.